Hello, everyone. I will no longer be narrating these facts that aren't true episodes. I've subscribed to an AI voice generator, and it is extremely good. I would much prefer that it was my voice that you're hearing, but it takes a lot of time. A 15-minute podcast easily takes an hour and a half for me to record, splice up, edit, and do all that. Rest assured, the words are my own, and I am still doing all the work. It just won't be my voice that you hear. And I wanted you to know that and hear it straight from me. Thank you for tuning in. The Great Wall is visible from space. The Great Wall of China is the largest man-made structure in the world, or at least it was. It's difficult to say now because less than 10% of it still stands, and I have no idea how its size, even when it was complete, compares to other structures. It's also not clear what largest means. It's certainly the longest. Construction of the Great Wall began in 1368, and when it was completed, the wall was over 13,000 miles long. But when I think of largest, I think of overall mass and volume. Is the Great Wall the heaviest structure in the world? If we piled the entire thing into one giant lump, would it be the largest man-made lump in the world? Also, what counts as a structure? The Great Wall isn't a building. If the Great Wall counts as a structure, I would argue so does the United States National Highway System, which is 160,000 miles long. I would bet a lot of money that if it counts as a structure, it is the largest in the world, not the Great Wall of China. Knowing whether the Great Wall is visible from space is pretty straightforward. We don't need to go to space. We just need to know what is the smallest apparent size we can see. An object at arm's length takes up much of your field of view, but that shrinks more and more as the object gets further away. The angle this retreating object makes eventually becomes too small to see. The limit of our ability to distinguish detail is known as angular resolution. The human eye has an angular resolution of about 0.02 degrees. The generally accepted boundary of space is the Kármán line at 100 kilometers. 62 miles above the ground. The Great Wall has a width of only around 5 metres. This means the Great Wall creates an apparent angle of only 0.0015 degrees at the Kármán line that is far beyond our ability to see. But is there something man-made we could see from space? By that, I mean something we have built. Artificial lakes and open-pit mines are disqualified. It's surprisingly hard to figure out what the largest man-made structure is in terms of total area. The largest building in the world is the New Century Global Center in Chengdu, China. However, this is measured in terms of floor area, and the building is many stories tall. The building with the largest footprint appears to be either the Boeing Everett factory in Everett, Washington, or the Alsmere Flower Auction building in Alsmere, Netherlands. This isn't very scientific, but I looked at these structures on Google Earth from a ground height of 100 kilometers and found that I could make them out from their surroundings. An object with a width in all directions of 0.02 degrees would only need to be 35 meters wide to be visible from the Kármán line. However, because this represents the absolute limit of human vision, those objects would appear as a speck with no detail. In order to see detail in an object, the object needs to be about 0.3 degrees wide. 
This means that any structure at least 524 meters wide in all directions will be large enough to see detail from the Kármán line. This turns out to be almost exactly the minimum width of both the Boeing factory and the flower building mentioned earlier. Mrs. O'Leary's cow started the Chicago Fire of 1871. Officially called the Great Chicago Fire, it's only the seventh deadliest disaster in Chicago's history, but is undoubtedly its most well-known. It ranks as the 20th deadliest fire explosion in U.S. history. The claim that Catherine O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern in a barn, causing the blaze, is nothing but hearsay. It's hypothetically possible, but so is the claim that some illegal gamblers hiding in her barn, an alternative rumour, knocked over a lantern that began the fire. The fire indeed began on Mrs. O'Leary's property. The fire began at around 8pm on October 8th. Before the fire finished, the Chicago Evening Journal published that a cow kicked over a lantern in a barn where a woman was milking. One of Catherine O'Leary's sons, James, insisted later in life the fire was started by green hay that had been harvested and spontaneously combusted. While spontaneous human combustion is nonsense, hay can ignite from heat generated by microorganisms inside. The problem with James's argument is it had been exceptionally dry for months before the fire. Hay needs to have moisture to combust, and he was two years old at the time. According to Catherine O'Leary, she was first made aware of the fire at about 8.30pm when her husband woke her from sleep, exclaiming that the barn was on fire. She rushed outside and saw dozens of neighbours frantically trying to put out the fires with buckets of water filled in a bathtub connected to a fire hydrant. The thing you have to keep in mind is Mrs O'Leary did not live in the middle of the country. Having a barn and livestock in the middle of a city was normal in 1871, even one whose population at the time was 300,000. Mrs. O'Leary lived only a short distance southwest of downtown Chicago. Winds carried the flames toward the northeast. As previously mentioned, the area was under a severe drought, and the majority of buildings were made of wood. This caused the fire to spread rapidly. The fire was able to jump across large streets and the Chicago River thanks to a terrifying phenomenon of fire whirls. As the heat from the flames rises, it contacts cooler air and begins to swirl. Fire whirls are basically small fire tornadoes. These fire whirls lifted burning embers high into the air, allowing them to travel much further with the wind than normal. Side note. Eventually, the courthouse caught fire. The mayor was left with a serious dilemma. Free the prisoners or leave them there. On the one hand, you're deliberately releasing prisoners into society. On the other hand, you can hardly leave them there to die. I find this to be far more interesting than the trolley problem. The city was hopelessly unequipped for such a disaster. On October 10th, the fire naturally burned out, but not until it had destroyed 17,000 structures, leaving 100,000 people homeless and claiming approximately 300 lives. After nine days of investigation, city board members determined the cause was unknowable. Mrs. O'Leary herself testified that a friend had told her she saw a man enter her barn that night to milk cows. Perhaps in the way rumours start, 
This bit of information morphed into the traditional story that Catherine herself was milking cows in her barn when one of them kicked over a lantern. Over time, she was also smeared as a klutz and a drunk. The anguish she must have suffered the rest of her life is hard to imagine. She died 24 years after the fire that began in her barn under mysterious circumstances. In 1997, the Chicago City Council officially exonerated her. George Washington had wooden teeth. Once a person reaches a particular status, myths about them begin to grow. Many of them form long after the person has died, and the curse of time obscures the origins of these myths into total mystery. Achilles may have been a real person, but nobody actually believes he was dipped in the river Styx and granted invincibility from the ankle up. There are plenty of untrue facts about George Washington. I'll discuss the more fanciful ones in the next segment, but the claim of his wooden teeth is not far-fetched, it's just wrong. Considering what we use teeth for, the idea of making dentures out of wood sounds like a terrible idea. That said, wooden dentures have been made. George Washington just never wore any. Washington owned many sets of dentures. The only pair still around are preserved at Mount Vernon. That pair contains human teeth, but his other dentures had teeth made of hippopotamus, walrus, and elephant ivory, cow and horse teeth, as well as lead, brass, silver, and gold. It's not clear why, but Washington had horrible tooth problems. He had his first adult tooth removed at the age of 24. By the time he became president at age 57, he had only one tooth left. His various dental apparatuses gave him an inconsistent appearance. If you look at portraits of him, you can see that his mouth seems noticeably different in some of them. He lamented over this in letters he wrote. Washington's tooth troubles played a role in the defeat of the British forces at Yorktown. The British intercepted a mail packet containing letters from Washington. In one of them, Washington asked his dentist, located in Philadelphia, to send back some dental tools. Washington was stationed near New York then, and the British assumed this meant Washington would be there for some time. Cornwallis was relatively weak at Yorktown at the time, but the British did not see the need to reinforce him any time soon. However, Washington and General Jean-Baptiste Donatien de Vimeur, Comte de Rochambeau, had already planned to move toward Yorktown. The British army surrendered on October 19, 1781. While we are on the subject of the Revolutionary War, here is a bonus fact that isn't true. The Battle of Bunker Hill was not fought on Bunker Hill. That was the original plan, but almost all the fighting occurred on the adjacent Breed's Hill. George Washington cut down a cherry tree as a boy. The tale of Washington and the cherry tree was first told by Mason, Parson, Weems in his work, A History of the Life and Death, Virtues and Exploits of General George Washington, published in 1800. It's not clear if Weems believed the story or if he made it up to exalt Washington. His source for the story is an unnamed elderly lady who was a distant relative of Washington and spent much time with the family when she was young. The gist of the story is Washington was given a hatchet as a gift, which he then used to cut down a small cherry tree in the family garden. The next day, Washington's father was looking for an answer to what happened, at which point Washington confessed, I can't tell a lie, Pa. You know I can't tell a lie. 
I did cut it with my hatchet. Run to my arms, you dearest boy, cried his father in transports. Run to my arms. Glad am I, George, that you killed my tree, for you have paid me for it a thousandfold. Such an act of heroism in my son is more worth than a thousand trees, though blossomed with silver and their fruits of purest gold. This story is an example of a hagiography, an idealized, uncritical biography, or what we might call a puff piece today. To me, it's a bit creepy. It reeks of the way people in North Korea speak of their dear leader. And if you think the story is crazy, you should see the artwork associated with Washington. There is a hilarious painting depicting Washington confessing to his father in which the young Washington is painted with his adult head. That's nothing compared to the fresco that adorns the Capitol building dome. On it, Washington is painted alongside multiple Roman gods, himself seated among the clouds, reminiscent of many Renaissance paintings of God. Another made-up story from Washington's youth is that he once threw a silver dollar across the Potomac River. The river is a mile wide at Mount Vernon, so this is obviously impossible. 